What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. There is there's truth in what you say, and I love working with athletes because... But you can't ask them to, to act outside. You know, actor, athletes playing athletes is one thing. Athletes doing Shakespeare is something else. So uh, as long as you keep them in their world, they're great. Welcome into another episode of Baseball Americas from Phenom to the Farm. I'm your host, Kyle Banduho. Today's episode is, is personally a dream come true for me and something I hope everyone enjoys. Today I'm talking to Ron Sheldon, who was an Orioles minor league infielder in the late 60s, but is better known as the filmmaker responsible for films such as White Man Can't Jump, Tin Cup, Blue Chips, and of course, Bull Durham. First ballot, sports movie, Hall of Famer, and just incredible storyteller. Today's episode is kind of a bit of a hybrid. We spend the first half talking about his life in baseball, which is incredibly interesting on in its own right. The Orioles were the premier organization during that era, and Shelton dives into the life in baseball that led him to create the ultimate minor league baseball movie. We then, in the second half, dive into movies. If you want a ton of Bull Durham talk, it's not as much here. Ron just released a book called The Church of Baseball, The Making of Bull Durham. Highly recommend any fans of the movie check it out. Really interesting deep dive on both his baseball career and the making of this movie. Everything you'd want on the creation of Bull Durham, from him writing the script to casting the movie, the story of making it, some battles with the studio. Just a really entertaining read. Highly recommend it. Uh, it was a real treat for me to to chop it up with Ron in general. On the back half, you'll hear me reference another podcast or being a part of another podcast. That is my other show, Big Screen Sports, which is a sports movie podcast. It comes out weekly if you're interested, but the back half of this interview will also be airing on that show. So you, you'll hear references to that. So if you get a little bit confused, uh, that's why. Also of note, this episode is not quite as child-friendly as, as some others. The explicit tag should be on it. A little bit of language that is just reflective of the language that some, sometimes is in his films so uh j- just a heads up there uh, if you know if you listen with kids in the car but really enjoyable episode with with ron it was again a, a huge treat for me i hope everyone enjoys it uh episodes are from phenom the farm drop every other tuesday if you enjoy this one subscribe wherever you get your podcast go check out past interviews and if you haven't yet leave a five-star rating and a review on apple Podcasts. we have some great episodes coming up uh, we have one with a big league reliever turned artist and one of the greatest pitchers in college baseball history, or at least of the past 15 years. So a lot of good stuff to look forward to there. Also, make sure to subscribe to BaseballAmerica.com and the BA podcast feed for all amateur baseball and prospect news. BA is covering the fall league. We got team top 30s coming soon. Always good things happening at BA. Always a good time to be a subscriber. With that, let's talk to the great Ron Shelton. All right, joining in for today's episode from Phenom to the Farm, he was signed as an undrafted free agent by the Orioles in 1967 out of Westmont College, former minor league infielder and writer-director of films such as Bull Durham and Tin Cup, and the author of a new book, The Church of Baseball, The Making of Bull Durham, Home Runs, Bad Calls, Crazy Fights, Big Swings, and a hit, Ron Shelton. Ron, thank you so much for joining the show. Thank you. Also, White Me Can't Jump, which I know they play basketball in Texas. They do. They do. Yeah. No, we'll, we'll, uh, yeah, we'll get into that. Yeah. So, uh, also including, including blue chips and the best of times you've, you've certainly made your way around the sports movie universe, which we're going to get into on the back half of, of this run. I, I want to start off with a question. Uh, what is, what is more difficult squaring up a baseball or dealing with a studio as a first time director? Well, dealing with a studio, even as a 20th time director is, is quite difficult. Um, baseball is more honest. <laughs> the studio team, um, but I, I I kind of agree with Ted Williams. Hitting a baseball is, is probably the hardest thing in all of sports. 
extremely right. challenging. Extremely yep. challenging. And if folks, if you want you want more info on how challenging it is uh, dealing with the studio, go go get Ron's book. It is uh, it was eye opening. It's not what I, I I look. I view Bull Durham as the sacred text in this wonderful movie, and I. The the turmoil behind the scenes uh, that that battle does not does not come through in the film. Um, let, let's let's go back to your baseball career. Let's go back pre movies. When did you first realize you had a, a future in, in professional baseball? Well, I wanted a place since I was a kid, like everybody. But I was little. I was small, and even in high school, I was like the short, scrappy, shortstop who you know managed to fight his way onto the varsity early because. I was the scrappy guy and, you know, I choked up that much and you couldn't get the ball by me, but I, you know, I'd hit a hundred singles, but I was a good fielder and, uh, you know, did my, I was a Santa Barbara high school where my hero was Eddie Matthews, Santa Barbara high school alum. And, um, and even when I left high school, no D one school was in, nobody was interested in me. I, um, and certainly no professional teams in, in the college I went to, Westmont was a very small, it was like D3 actually, but it had NAIA D3, but it had really good sports programs and baseball programs. And I went there and, and between my senior year in high school and my freshman year of college, I went from, you know, 5'8", 150 pounds to 6'1", 185 pounds. And all of a sudden scouts and other people were saying, who's that guy? And I, I played third base and and I, at that point, I thought, I, I, I want to give it a shot to play professionally because I have the size now. So you get picked up by the Orioles after after your senior year. It's it's kind of in the fresh fresh stages of the draft. Draft's only two years old. You get you get picked up after the draft as an undrafted free agent. That is, there's at that point, there's no baseball America. There's no real prospect coverage. Is not a thing at that point. Like there there's no there's no consensus on how guys stack up and and anything for like that. What did you think the Ron Shelton path to the big leagues was? Oh, you're just, you're not even thinking about the big leagues. You're trying to think that day, that town, how to get your hits, make the plays, show that you can play the game at a high level, including baseball IQ, and that you're the toughest guy out there. The guy behind you doesn't beat you out, and you have a chance to beat the guy ahead of you out. It's all about who's ahead of me, how do I beat him out? Who's behind me, how do I make sure he doesn't get my job? Typically now guys get signed, they get sent out to to short season or the complex league or something like that. They 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 they're assigned a role. You're gonna be on this team, you're gonna be, you know, maybe your starter, maybe your bench guy, whatever it is. You go out to Bluefield and it is essentially an open tryout. Uh they you know, they they send out double the roster. How how long were you playing minor league baseball, playing in Bluefield, maybe the ne- next year in Stockton before it stopped feeling like a tryout, before you were sure you had a spot? It was always a tryout. And everybody will tell you that. I mean, every day you're fighting for your life. And I mean, I got out of Bluefield in two weeks, but it was a tryout. And the book tells an amazing story about it. So I fought my way to Stockton. Then I got hurt in Stockton and I came back. And then I went to, I had a great year. went to winter ball, went to the Texas League, and then double A, which was double A, and then the National League. And I never got released. I, I just, this strike of 72 hit. And uh, I couldn't. I couldn't sit it out. With that, when um, when you get into pro ball, or at least like now, the minor leagues are development over over winning. It is you you're, you've got this team of twenty five and twenty are playing, so the five prospects can play. It's that it's that sort of thing, and it's focused on that. The team wins eighty games, great. They lose eighty games, how the prospects do? When when you were playing, when you, when you came up, what was the what was the culture around winning? What was the the main goal for you and your teammates? Was it was it still intrinsically you know single minded like my development then the team, or was there this focus of hey we want to win the Texas League or the Cal League championship? Oh, you want to win. I mean, you're there because you're used to winning and you want to win, and everybody's a fighter. Um, and you know, you realize the organization didn't really care, but you care. The guys cared a lot, and. Um, but yes, uh, the amazing thing about the minors back then is there was no coaching. I mean, it was a free for all. It was just Darwinian. May the may the strongest man win. I mean, I never got coaching. The only guys that got coaching were the bonus babies. 
Bobby Gritch and Don Baylor got coaching. I didn't get coaching. They were my buddies too, by the way. But Don Baylor from Texas and uh, later MVP of American League. And, and uh, so, so yeah, they, they never said, look, here was some adjustment. There was no analytics. There was no radar gun. Um, there, I mean, there was no uh, video. I never saw my, to this day, I've never seen myself swing a bat. Um, how'd you hone your craft? How do you, how do you get better when there's no, there's no observation in that regard? You can't even self-observe. You talk to the every, guys, talk to each other all the time. I mean, we're sharing secrets. How did you, you know, you're on a roll. What are you seeing? What are you looking at? What are you guessing? Um, it's really, a, it was really appalling when I look back about how, I mean, I, I, I went from uh, third base to shortstop to second base where I played most of my career. And I'm, I'm like, studying how do you turn a double play nobody told me and i'm looking at all the great made things on games oh that's the best way and um so you are self-taught but you also the good part of that is you have to or or you don't survive um the bad part is boy i wish i had the coaching you know we weren't allowed to lift weights it was considered um it would make your muscles too tight because nobody knew what the hell they were doing and um only when Nautilus came in in the 70s, the guys start lifting weights because it wasn't dead weight. Nautilus had the, you know, the, the, the water, whatever, resistance. And guys like Bobby Gritch, who hit like, and he, he and I are close. He's still, I like, uh, he hit like one home run, one home run, and all of a sudden he hit 30 because of Nautilus. And then all of a sudden everybody started lifting. And I never lifted weight in my life. I wish the hell I... I would have been 10 years later, but it was a, it was a free for all. And it was, you were on your own. Interesting. So and now in the off season, guys will, they, they go back to their hometowns. They're, they're doing a strict workout program, strict nutrition and training in a lab. Essentially they cameras on their swing or if they're a pitcher and their delivery, things like that. How were you spending your off season? What was the, the time before spring training? What were you doing as a baseball player? And then just out, outside, outside interests. Well, I stayed in shape, but I uh, I didn't play much baseball, but I'd stay in shape playing basketball just to keep my wind and, and all that. But I would work. I know you need a job. Sears and Roebuck. Uh, I substitute taught in high schools for three years. You sold a Lady Kenmore's? I, I, made the, I made the decorations. I was in the decoration department for uh, Lady Kenmore's, and it was nasty work, too. Um, yeah, you, you were just trying to get through for before you went back to training. And then I played winter ball once, which meant I finished 142 games, and that was in Stockton. We won the championship, and then it was a real honor to get invited to the Florida Instructional League. You were one of 25 prospects, and I went there, and I hit over 300 in Florida, and and that got me a triple A. So um, I I was on a path there. Uh, The strike didn't help, 72. A lot of guys' careers kind of ended. Nobody ever talks about that. You mentioned needing a job in the offseason, which is still – you know, 40, 50 years later, still, still pretty common. A lot of minor leaguers who don't make a lot of money still have to work in the off season, something like that. You say in in the book, you get your, your $500 a week standard minor league salary. How far did that, did that stretch in 67? This past year is the first year that that organizations have covered housing back then. And for, you know, 50 years after every you're in charge of that. How, how are you living off that, off that 500? What, what was the, the lifestyle in, in 67? Well, uh, yeah, in 67, you got in a ball, you got three dollars a day meal money. And even in 67, that didn't go very far. Um, well, guys are living, you know, sharing apartments, uh, ball players, uh, or if you didn't, you know, you get the cheapest apartment. You tend to, the tend to ball players would know because the general manager would say the cheapest apartment in towns are the ones over there on the other side of the railroad track, and that's where you'd, you'd stay. And, uh, you know, if you were living with a woman or something and you went on a road trip, they were terrified because there was gunshots. I remember in Stockton, there was always gunshots <laughs> outside the apartment and the, and the doors were like paper thin. But um, by the time I got to AAA, well, AA and AAA, even though you weren't making a whole lot more, 700, 800, I think I made 900 a month in AAA. That, you, could, you could live on that. You couldn't go, you couldn't get past the season, but you could... You rent a house. We would rent houses, and somebody have the upper floor, and another guy have the lower floor. That kind of thing. 
blending a, a baseball question with a movie question, when you're building out a, a Crash Davis or any sort of sports movie character, how much is you inventing a person uh, off the top of your head and how much is, is you pulling traits of remembrance from people you experienced in your own career? Like I saw... You know, you you describe your your first minor league manager Joe Altabelli as a career AAA player at a cup of coffee in the majors. That sounds very very familiar. So how much is I, I've got to come up with these people, and how much you know were you able to pull little parts of Nuke and pull parts of you know Billy Hoyle? Well, they all come from real people, but they're usually com- composite of various characters, and then the imagination adds to them, but. I knew a lot of Nuke Lelouches. Everybody, everybody that played pro ball talked about the Nukes after the movie. Said, oh my God, it's this guy, it's that guy. And that, they are the guys that have, have a God-gifted arm. They really can throw a ball through a brick wall. Um, and they have great stuff. They just can't throw strikes and they, and they don't know how to pitch. They don't know how to change speeds. They don't know how, and somebody comes up, you know, along with half of their God-gifted talent and makes it to the majors and has a great career. So it's the classic million dollar arm five cent head guy. There is a million of them out there. The one you leaned on being Steve Dalkowski, who has now become even more of an urban legend. I think since, since Bull Durham has kind of, kind of elevated that, like how, how often was he referenced just being in the the Oriole organization? I know out, you know, the first time you saw him, you you mentioned in the book that, you know, he came to ask Altabelli for money. Like how often was that arm just referenced offhand? Not often. At the time, I, I kind of latched on to it because I, I just not knowing I was going to become a writer or a director. I, he just was a fascinating character, the way Max Patkin was a fascinating character. And, um, and, and he wasn't strictly in my head when I wrote Nuke, but there was another guy. We had a guy on our team named Greg Arnold who uh, was pretty crazy. I've talked to him since. He's sure that he was the model for Nuke. Uh, he was a top pit, you know, looking guy. He sang, he did, he sang in the, he thought he was Engelbert Humperdinck and he would sing in the roadhouses and, you know, a wild character and, um, and had great arm, no control. Um, Dalkowski, I, I mean, the people say to me, who's the toughest guy you ever faced? And I'll tell them some guy you never heard of on one given night where, where he could throw the ball where he wanted. But, then he'd walk 14 the next game. So, you know, those guys you never heard of were, had, were, were scary on the mound. Also because they were harder to hit because one pitch would be on the outside corner at the knees and the next one would be at your head. You know, I found it easier to hit the higher I went in the minors because it was, it was more of a chess match. There was a lot of talent, obviously, but, you know, they're not going to throw the ball over the backstop. Yeah, uh, you, you can actually you can actually dig. I mean, it's the it's the logic behind Crash telling him to hit the bull. Don't let guys dig in. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And you know, in the low minors, a guy, I got hit in the head on an O2 pitch, leading off a game right there, taken to the hospital in Bakersfield. Now, why are you hitting a guy in the head O2 to start lead the game? Well, that's because they don't know where the ball's going. It's a nightmare. Um. So you. You're in that Orioles organization at the time. The Orioles is the premier organization in baseball. Each spring training, when you get that glimpse at Jim Palmer, Brooks Robinson, and, and Boog Powell, just the big league Orioles, how big was that gap really, and how how loaded was the organization? You know, Triple A down. Well, we won two or three championships in my five years at different levels, and and um, it was it was loaded. Uh, we, everybody. Who wasn't like a first round draft pick wanted to get traded to a to a uh, expansion team. There was, a, they were just like Montreal had just started and maybe Seattle. The Pilots. Yeah, because I overlapped Jim Bouton, who I later got to know very well, and um, we were we were seeing guys go to Montreal that couldn't have made our double A team, honestly, and uh, and the Orioles were stacked as I as I said one time. Not that Crash Davis is is this guy, but one of the models for Crash is a guy like Mike Ferraro. And Mike Ferraro was a third baseman, four years in a row, internationally, triple-A, all-star. He never got a shot in the big leagues till he was 32 because he was back up for Brooks Robinson. And by the time he was 32, he had some injury problems. And so, you know, they'd rather have him playing every day in triple-A in case Brooks got hurt, he'd be ready 
than sitting on the bench in Baltimore where he'd be making a lot of money and getting a pension and all that. So I, I, I saw guys like that, and yet they played the game with, with, with passion and with seriousness, and they were really quality players. Um, and, and they had this sort of lid on their righteous anger. You know, they had a right to be pissed off, but it wouldn't, they didn't let it really show. They just, they were pros. They were hired guns. They were professionals, and I always respected that. Well, when you were in AAA, the O's had Davey Johnson, who was an all-star. I mean, you're as blocked as you can be, too, at second base. Is there any, at, at that point, that's, you know, is there any recourse? Do you, can you say, hey, trade me? Well, that's, the, our, our, here's how stacked they were. The Rochester had three minor league players a year in the row, I believe. You can look it up. Roger Freed, who they traded to the Phillies because he, he couldn't hit a curveball, even though he could hit a fastball 800 feet. Then Don Baylor. Don Baylor couldn't get, break into the Oriole lineup after his minor league player of the year. He comes back to AAA, and the minor league player of the year is Bobby Gritch, who's a shortstop with 37 home runs. And they trade Davey Johnson to make Bobby Gritch their major league second baseman. I'm, and, uh, you know, so, and then the strike hit. That's what happened to me. But if I'd hit, you know, if my lifetime average was 285 instead of 265, maybe I'd have found a home. But um, I'm not complaining at all. I got, you know, baseball's as close as we have to a meritocracy in the country. So, um, you know, it, the, the, most of the guys who got there deserved it. And a few guys got screwed like Mike Ferraro. Well, something I was curious about with your game is, uh, especially this was back, I mean, stolen bases were a bigger thing back then, a lot more fun. You ran about 30, 40 times a year. So there's the guys like your Rickies and your Vince Coleman's who they get on first and it's like, hey, this is a pit stop. I'm, I'm going to be at second. Running 30 to 40 times a year, what factored into when you hit the bag and you decide I'm going, like how many, what What was the checklist of, you know what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make a run at it? Well, usually the manager would give you a sign you weren't on your own. And Ricky Henderson's on his own, you know. Um, the uh, It was situational. There's a time to steal and there's time not to steal. Um, I never could steal off a lefty. I never could read that weird balk rule. The lead foot is behind the, the knee. And all. I mean, it's, it's a weird translatable rule. Um, but I, I remember playing against a team in Albuquerque that was the Dodgers. And they were managed by Del Grandel, and he knew he, he pitched out every time I stole. He just knew when I was stealing. They must have known the signs. Of, and Ferguson or Jaeger, they'd throw me out, and I'd go back to Dargan and say, "Man, I don't want to steal against these guys." They know every time. So, but when it got to AAA, we didn't run much. We had a lot of power, a lot of power. That was more the Earl Weaver. Earl Weaver didn't run either. So when you got to AAA, you were doing it the Baltimore way, the station to station. We we talked a little bit before we started recording. Uh, you you played at the Texas League. The Texas League, there's a line in Bull Durham. Crash talks about having to go back to the bus leagues. The Texas League is the bus league. Those those are the those rides are, are the beast. What is what was the Ron Shelton guide to survival on the bus? Well, we we were we were in Dallas Fort Worth two years before it became the Rangers. So we were lucky. We were in a big city. I mean, between Dallas and Fort Worth at that time, there was nothing but farms and Six Flags over Texas, and we were next to Six Flags, but now it's, of course, one metropolitan area. So we got to fly to places and then bus. So I know other teams didn't have it as lucky. Um, I mean, we would drive to Little Rock and Memphis and tennis and all that's Memphis and uh, that Shreveport, that's not far away, but we'd fly to El Paso, obviously. Midland Odessa wasn't in the league, but I would wave going over because of my family's from that area. Tommy Lee Jones is from that area, a guy I love and have worked with, um, San Saba, Texas. But I would read on the buses. I, I didn't get into the card games. Um, I played a little bit cards, but some guys would play for 12 hours and I would read, and try to get some sleep. Uh, you know, uh, you, you have to get in a mindset because you finish a, a, a game late you don't go to the hotel, you get on the friggin' bus. <laughs> Seven in the morning or somewhere else. When I played in the California League, there were some brutal ones. We went from Santa Barbara, they were in the league a little bit to Reno, Nevada. And you get out and you play a double, you know. I mean, this is why we all use bennies and greenies and uppers and all that stuff because 
you know, it was not thought of as drugs. They weren't even illegal to like 2006. Mm -hmm. It was just like, instead of five Red Bulls, because they didn't have Red Bull, you'd take one of those pills. Was, they, were, they were served in the training room, by the way. What was the, the first experience you had? Like when you, you get into the clubhouse at Bluefield or something like that, did, was there anyone to walk over and just be like, coffee with the green lid, that's the one you want? Or is it like, a, was it spoken about really? Uh, in Bluefield, I was unaware of them and I was gone from Bluefield quickly because I moved up. But um, I think in A-ball, they started appearing. And then when I got, I, I remember in AAA, they were out in the open. <laughs> they were just like in a bowl. Um, the complete guys didn't know what they were doing. You're just, hey, give me a couple of those. Hey, try that green one. That's a good one. So, uh, but the thing about uh, the amphetamines, keep in mind, I mean, I've never used drugs in my life. I drink too much, but I, I never went down the drug road. I went down the booze road. And they weren't thought of as drugs. They were like, you know, now we have Advil and Motrin or uh, Red Bull. This was like that. Um, it wasn't heroin. It wasn't performing enhancing. It wasn't steroids. It didn't screw up your internal organs. And guys used to say, you could see when a pitcher was on it because he was twitchy. <laughs> they were going to the rosin bag and, you know, and, and guys would get on the pitcher and say, those greenies are wearing off in the fourth inning, baby. <laughs> And pitchers would tell me on our team that they stopped taking them because when they started to lose it, they didn't realize it. They still felt good. They felt up and their fastball was slowing down. They didn't know it. So, uh, so pitchers stopped using them, to be honest. It was more middle infield like me. Wilson, you sent the game-winning email at the buzzer, avoiding a 455 meeting on everyone's calendar. How did you do it? I got a huge assist from Grammarly, an AI writing partner that helped me make my point. And it works everywhere I write. Summarizing a doc only took one click. When everyone uses Grammarly, everything just makes sense. Go to Grammarly.com slash podcast to download it for free. That's Grammarly.com slash podcast. Easier said, done. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate. What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Because you had, to, you had to get up for every game. Pitcher, you're just pitchers are just going, you know, one out of every five. They had to find that intrinsic yeah. motivation. Yeah, in a couple of years, I played every inning. So, uh, you know, in the Texas or the California League where it's hot. Yeah, oh, you're telling me. Yeah. Uh, you you once you, you mentioned like reading on the bus. You once you wrote a line for Max Patkin about Crash. Said he even saw him read a book without pictures once. What was the mentality about having interest outside of baseball in the locker room, being interested in what's obviously Vietnam's going on, like being interested in what's going on in the world beyond baseball. There's a difference between finding entertainment, like going to soaps or going to matinees, like you wrote about and actually taking interest in the outside world and being someone who brings that in the locker room. I learned not to bring it into the locker room. Um, you know, I was seriously upset about the Vietnam war. I, I was not a pacifist. I just, had debated against it in college. I knew a lot about it. I, I'd lost friends there, guys I'd played baseball with growing up. Didn't seem like a place we should be, <laughs> losing American lives, killing innocent people. And But nobody wanted to talk about it. In a certain way, everybody's afraid of getting drafted also, because if you got released, you might get drafted. And if you, some guys who were single joined the National Guard, so they wouldn't get drafted, <laughs> and hopefully they didn't go to Vietnam, Bobby Gritch was in the National Guard. Um, Guys were married were quickly having babies because if you had a baby and you're married, you had less chance to be drafted. So this was in the air everywhere. 
but nobody really liked to talk about it. And um, the other thing going on at the time was that you know, the civil rights movement was in you know, full swing and, and, and cities were on fire. Remember this was Cleveland was on fire, the charades. I mean, it was a crazy time. Late 60s, early 70s, sex, drugs, rock and roll, Vietnam, civil rights, acid, <laughs> I mean, uh, Jimi Hendrix, I mean, you know, uh, and I'm playing baseball. And um, so in a certain way, we're in a bubble, but a certain way we weren't. But I, I people didn't want to talk about it. Guys didn't want to talk about it. In your book, you express some regret. You walk away during the 72 strike, thought the, um, you know, thought the season might get canceled. You chose to move on with your life. How much of the crash character, I always think about when he walks, you know, you know, fuck this fucking game, leaves Skip's office, comes back in, who we playing tomorrow? Oh, still, still coming to the ballpark and getting a paycheck. How much of that internal, I just, I want to keep coming to the ballpark, keep playing, was, was based on your, your kind of internal regret of walking away from baseball? Well, I talk about that in the book. I, you know, I do have regrets, but, um, at the time, in a certain way, I didn't want to turn into Crash Davis. Um, I didn't want to be doing this when I was 35 if I wasn't in the big leagues. You know, um, I got married and it was not a good life for a wife. Um, I, I had five years and again, the strike, the strike happened. There was no spring training and then there was no, the season didn't start. It was a shortened season. So for three or four months, it looked like there was going to be no season at all. And that's when I made the commitment to go back to college. So flash forward 15 years, as you do in the book, um, as a guy who, who played sports, two sports in college, baseball professionally, how did you feel about the sports movie genre, I guess, pre-Bull Durham or even like pre-Best of Times? There, there'd been that huge surge kind of starting with Rocky, you know, Bad News Bears, and Natural comes out, obviously, you know, Raging Bull and... Uh, the, the running one wins wins the best picture you know when you're when you're when you start writing best of times is it is it writing a sports movie wave is it, i have interest in this i want to do this or is there any bit of hey i can tell these stories better i've been there well i i just fell in love with movies is that i talk about the book um when i was playing baseball because they would get me out of a hotel or the motel and i got started to get fascinated with movies but never thinking i'd do it um when I finally did become a writer and started to have some success, I felt most sports movies I don't like. There are some some that I like, but mostly they're about the home run in the bottom of the ninth. Guess what, folks? It almost never happens. The walk-off rarely happens. Um, and and uh, so I said, I think I can tell these stories from a point of view, from the athlete's point of view, not the fan's point of view. Because the athlete's looking at looking at a different game than the fans <laughs> and uh, has a different take on everything. So that's all I tried try to do. I mean, I'd point out later when I became a story editor, you know, and the script of Platoon came across our desk. It was like, wow, this is great. This guy obviously was in the foxholes in Vietnam. This could not have been written by anybody else. And in a certain way, I wanted my sports movies to feel like, well, this guy's been there because I'm seeing stuff I didn't know existed or seeing a an angle on the story, you know? Um, so that, that, that is true that and to this day, I'm still working on sports stories. Hold on here. This is a Ted Williams famous book about Ted Williams. I'm working on that. Ted Williams in his sixties when he's a fisherman, um, the keys and, um, about I've got the writer about, Kramer, right? It's Kramer's book. We, we optioned. Yeah. It's about the writer, great writer going down to see a guy who doesn't want to see him. <laughs> and it's a great book and we are, we're in the middle of that writing that um, I've got a book that we're going to develop about Rose versus Giamatti those six months and uh, you know I call it the most reflective man who ever lived meets the least reflective man who ever lived <laughs> and we're Brian Cranston's going to play Giamatti so uh, just anyway so I'm I can't get away from sports I guess <laughs> As someone, so I've spent the last three years on the show kind of complaining that they don't make as many sports movies now. And, and that is just, that is music to my ears on, on all fronts. Um, they're, hard, they're hard to get made, Kyle, because they, they, uh, they don't have, movie, baseball don't have any appeal. And, and they like to finance movies with a lot of forum. Uh, 
And that's the trick. So you've got to get a movie star or two and make them for a price, which is what I'm trying to do. So that's actually something I wanted to ask you, I guess, kind of jumping into, into tin cup or at least the tin cup question. There's not, there's, there's a ton of baseball. We're just talking American movie, ton of baseball movies. There's a lot of baseball movies, combat sports like boxing. There's going to, they're going to be making boxing movies until you and I are both long gone. Um, a lot of basketball movies too. There are very few golf movies and good golf movies. Tin cup is the one that uh, this, this is like blowing smoke up your ass. Tin cup accomplishes the feat of, of filming golf and showing a tournament and being in that feel the best. There are some others that do, you know, the shots we recently did the greatest game ever played on this show. There's, you know, bagger Vance has, it has its other problems. Um, it with golf, golf has, uh, golf has international appeal, especially, especially now it's getting more and more popular. I know you're a big fan of golf. I know we, we share a distaste for live golf, which is nice. Is there something more difficult about getting golf on the ground, off the ground or filming golf? Like, is it more of a challenge? It is, you know, spread out as opposed to one stadium, one court, one arena. Does that factor into getting golf movies off the ground? It's a great question because I have one called Q School. And I wrote it with John Norville, who wrote 10 Cup with me. John, wonderful writer, but he also played golf at Stanford. So you know you know how good you have to be to play at Stanford. Yeah, that's where Tiger went. Yeah, and uh, Tom Watson, among others. So um, we've had trouble getting it off the ground. It's a really good script. We still, we're still trying. Uh, school um it's about a guy oh you'll love this one a major league baseball star who's now in his mid-40s and like mike schmidt and johnny bench and some others he misses the he's kind of on the bubble of the hall of fame and he just loves the rush of the crowd and the competition and he's a colorful big wonderful lovable sexy blowhard of a guy kind of you know he's our kind of guy I mean, full of shit but he kind of knows it you know and he's not a liar he's cheap he's and he has worked very hard now he's a scratch golfer like bench and schmidt and so he goes to the q school to try to qualify and it's about those six days but there's several other characters and women and his rivals and and what happened so it, it's a great story and it's a hard. It's the hardest sport to shoot because it, it you know, it's not dynamic in, in the way other sports are. It's not the ballet. It's basically, and I've been to many, many professional golf tournaments. You, you walk in there and it's quiet. It's like a cathedral, and it's a it's 120 guys for two days doing exactly the same thing. You don't know who's winning if there wasn't a television guy telling you or the big leaderboards, which aren't very dramatic. So in that regard, it's a tricky sport to make. You know, boxing is the easiest because it's two guys are underwear trying to knock each other out. You don't need to explain. It's an easy plot device, boxing. Um, the question, so in, in the past, I guess, it, since I've been doing this show, I've always championed the phrase, cast athletes, not actors. And I always, I kind of say, hey, unless you're trying to, unless you need someone to go out and win you an Oscar, you can teach an athlete to act. And and athletes stuff stuff comes through on camera. If you're if you're shooting a sports movie, the way athletes carry themselves and act, that that stuff comes through, and you can teach someone. I look at Miracle as the biggest example of this, where they cast a bunch of actual hockey players, and the one guy who you could cover with the mask, the goalie, they actually they they cast an actor. Would you agree with that statement, or is there is there a certain time where you just you can't teach someone to? Have, there there are things that you need an actor to do that a lot of times you can, you can't teach an athlete. You've been blessed with with Costner, who is both, but is is there is there merit to just cast an athlete and you can teach them the rest? There is there's truth in what you say, and I love working with athletes because, but you can't ask them to to act outside, you know, actor, athletes playing athletes is one thing. Athletes doing Shakespeare is something else. So uh, as long as you keep them in their world, they're great. I mean, I had, you know, in 10 Cup, we had, you know, the two guys who were comfortable on camera, Peter Jacobson and Craig Stadler, they were fine with their line. Yeah. Um, the uh, Costner was a really, really good athlete. Tommy Lee Jones was an All-American, not All-American, All-Ivy League football player at, at Harvard, first strength. Um, I tend to, so if I have a guy that I need an actor, 
I really want them to have an athletic background. I really do. One thing about working with actors, uh, athletes, is you can tell them to do the same thing over and over and over, and they, they're used to it. That's what athletes do in muscle memory. You know, you'll, you'll practice the, the pickoff play 600 times a day in spring training. So they never get bored. They entertain themselves. They chat. They make jokes. They're, they, they don't complain. Where actors get a little bit prima donna-ish sometimes. So I'm, I'm happy to have a- a- athletes wherever I can. Well, and that's where, I mean, um, I, I think that's where all your movies succeed in that they're filled with athletes or actors who at least have played in the past and, and fill those vibes. And I, th- I think that works, you know, hand over hand. I'm going to leave most Bull Durham questions off off this interview because I, I want to encourage people to read the book where you go deeply, deeply in depth. And it is like, it's a true treat. And it's more than we could ever accomplish in these these last few minutes. But um, the, the one thing is the... Um, the scene that you mentioned that you had to cut between Annie and crash at a bar, the, the why baseball scene where Annie kind of explains her backstory and it's and you mentioned that it, it, it hurt a little bit. It was kind of like a kill your darlings moment of this scene. Didn't work with test audiences. might not work the movie or something like that. When you, you cut this scene, there's like the, the old adage of the guy who's had his heart broken. So he doesn't let himself, you know, he doesn't let himself love again. Is that on your mind when you write, white man can't jump or blue chips or tin cup or something like that is maybe not falling in love with certain material or, or thinking that there's ever something that a movie can, can live without. Or after that experience, did you, did you have to, I'm sticking with my guns. This is, this is right for the movie and in other films. No, I'm ruthless. When you get into the editing room, I'm, I'm ruthless. Uh, that doesn't mean you have a pain of pain because it's good work. And the famous scene or the not famous infamous the scene that I talk about that, we cut out. It wasn't so much the test audiences didn't like it. It was just the editor and me and a couple others felt the movie lost. We had everybody and it kind of takes a breath for this serious scene. And then it gets going again. And it was so intimate, this conversation between these two people who had not yet found each other physically, that it was like, well, the movie's over. They're like, they're so close already. They're talking like that. That's what I learned is what is to save the put the emotional reveal in the right place. So when we took the scene out to test it, the movie just sailed and I said we can't put it back. So I mean talk to editors I've worked with, they'll say it. I am ruthless. Even you know, when you write it and direct it, and sometimes it's four night all nighters, and you get it in the editing room and say, get rid of it. I mean, it, it's it's uh you know, you're kill your darlings all the time if you're any good, I think. Well, I mean it worked for Bull Durham regarded as regarded as a masterpiece. It was a hit, things like that. I've got my little picture of crash and nuke right there. Like it's endured. It was your first directorial feature. You've done a million cents. You've done, you've done a lot since with, with that being said, if you were doing bull Durham with exp- with experienced eyes, as opposed to the first time, do you think you could have done it better? Do you think you would have maybe made some, done some things that inadvertently wouldn't have made the movie as good if you were doing it with experience? Like, was there benefit to being a rookie and making that movie? Probably. That's a, that's a good observation. Um, you don't know what you don't know in a certain sense. And, uh, um, you know, you also think, I also thought, I'll not, this is the only chance I'll ever get to make a movie. So I'll fight for every second. And the book is all about those fights. And I happened to win most of the fights you don't always win the fights i've learned literal fights yeah well in actually one case an actual fight but um yeah I, I think there's something to that uh at the same time i'm i'm a better director now and i uh i i i, I just i couldn't get that movie made today because nobody would they'd say what do you mean it's in the minor leagues and always you know kevin Costner wasn't a star yet uh who's ever heard of of tim robbins uh, that's what they say. And there's no big game. Do they win the league? No, they're not even on the team at the end of the movie. Nuke's gone. Crash is gone. Maybe to Visalia, of all places. Which is, by the way, 30 minutes from Bakersfield. <laughs> so you've you've mentioned before that the 
the sequel to, to Bull Durham that you've talked out uh, imagines Crash is now managing AAA Durham. Annie's teaching at Duke. Nukes in Venezuela. They all they all find a way to reconnect. Uh, the Q School idea that you mentioned I, on Rich Eisen's show, you mentioned that that was originally a Tin Cup has to go to Q School. I, I, I won't make you rehash out everything you did on Rich Eisen's show about where your characters are now, but in, in, with the sports movie characters, who... Who has the most left to tell? Which, if you could re-explore one, you know, bring someone back, who in your mind, where's the most meat on the bone? If I could revisit one of these one guys of these now, yeah, years, years later, oh, that's a great question. Um, well, it's not Woody. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Wesley's character is interesting. Um, I mean, Al Stumps is very interesting because he ended up in controversy himself, uh, but I think unfairly so. Um, Crash remains a pretty interesting guy, I'd say. I think Crash... Yeah, I mean... Uh, mainly because, as I say, he loves something more than it loves him back. And that's the game, but we've all loved somebody, something, a job, a person, that, that more than it's that thing or a person has loved us back. And, and that, I think, it, it makes... Well, they're more universal than just a baseball movie. But I didn't know that. I wasn't aware of that when I was making it. I did it. Somebody told me that 10 years later. You know why this movie works, Ron? It's about a guy who loves something more than that. I went, oh, you're right. I, I was completely, I was just telling the story about two guys and a woman. Speaking on love in that regard, I, I feel like with your sports movies, they all work because they seem to be about something that you personally as the writer love love minor league baseball that 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 stuff comes through you know the pickup hoops aspect there's there's love behind the the sport um even in 10 cup this flawed character who makes a very questionable decision on 18 at the US Open it's just built out of love and it's i would say the sport things are positive i was curious again when i was i was doing some prep and i was listening to you talk uh about live golf on on Rich Eisen and live golf like live golf stinks it's just a, it's a stain can you make a good? Would you personally be able to make a good sports movie about a part of sport that you that you hate that you have distaste for a negative sports movie? Not a good question. Um, probably not. Uh, the one exception, I developed a script that didn't we thought was going to get made at HBO and then it didn't, based on the book Game of Shadows. Game of Shadows. It's a fabulous book. It's like all the president's men, except it's about the discovery of performance-enhancing drugs. It's, it's two investigative reporters in San Francisco in, in 2001 or two, whenever it was, were asked, go investigate this little lab called the Bay Area Lab Company, Balco, was raided by the local police south of San Francisco airport last night. Go check it out. Well, it turns into discovering you know, Victor Conti and the fact that, you know, Bonds is juiced, Marion Thompson's juiced, half the league is juiced, or the Olympian, and, and it blew it up. And it's a great book. It's also tragic because it reveals this kid, you know, young boys' brains are still forming and steroid rage happens with teenagers. And there's a lot of teenage suicides at the time of, of kids taking this stuff. And so it's it's it, it's it's about a part of the world I hate, but I, it would be a positive story because it's uncovering the truth. I still would like to get that made. I don't know if we can can ever get it made, but that, that would be the only exception. You're absolutely right. I have to like the world I'm I'm working in. Yeah, see, it's it's something that comes through in all your movies, and I think that's why people fell in love with Meyer Lee. I mean, Bull Durham is credited with with reinvigorating the, the town of Durham and just the minor leagues in, in general. And so I, I think that that comes through. Um, before I let you out of here, I have a quick-ish rapid fire that I, I, I want to run some stuff by you and get some answers, and I'll let you get out of here. Yeah, I could, I, I don't have to, I never have to buy a drink in Durham. Honest to God, oh, I could be sure. I'm sure. And it, it's so interesting. I've I've been to Durham, I've been to one, one Bulls game. I went to go watch a friend rehab there. And the crowd was because minor league you're you're there typically you're there for you know thirsty thursday or dollar you know hot dogs it's a place you can take your kids things like that the durham crowd was more into the game than any minor league crowd i've ever seen and more and, and that 
franchise that that especially you know since becoming the Rays has has won a lot and it it's a, it's a significant home field advantage that I'm not sure exists in a lot of other parts of minor league baseball now. Yeah, I did book signings down there this year after New York on the book, which I love because nobody's ever done book signings at a ballpark and we had 150 people in line and I threw out the first pitch the whole thing and they were a Rays franchise they were in first place again so. Yeah, I, I take credit for building that park and completely rehabbing the city of Durham, just so you know that. As well you should. As well you should. Um, okay, quick rapid fire. Favorite okay. minor league park that you played in, so not Durham? Silver Stadium, Rochester. Best pitcher you ever faced? Uh, best pitcher, this is rapid fire. I can't remember his name. He, uh, Jack Billingham. In, in terms of three pitches, he, he got me on three pitches that and say so you stood up, you went up there and went right back to the dugout without knowing what happened. And I never struck out uh, uh, taking, looking. I looked at three and went back. It was a winter ball. The guy said, nobody would have swung at those. You're fine. Don't worry about it. But on one at bat, it was Jack Billingham. Best actor athlete who is not Kevin Costner. Tommy Lee Jones. Oh, okay. Uh, this is actually, this is related to uh, something I need to know for uh, a book project that I am working on. How many pitches do you think that Nuke threw that night? He's sitting on 126 minimum with the 18 and 18. Oh, 175 easy. Yeah, it's quite quite the night for Nuke. Uh, sports movie you wish you could have directed, either because you loved it or you wanted to want to save it. Oh. Um, wow. Well, I'd like to do the real Babe Ruth story. <laughs> <laughs> Not the one you mentioned in your book. What is? When did that come out? The Oh, I, I don't know, but William Binnick was 45 playing an orphan. The real Babe Ruth story is a great, it's a, probably a miniseries based on Lee Montville's book, The Big Bam. Read that. This guy is bigger than any character you could imagine. Shakespearean, out of control, bawdy, uh, X-rated movie. I mean, it's out there. I'm in on you doing that. The last one, every guest of From Phenom to the Farm gets this. Do you have a nightmare bus ride story from the minor leagues? Oh, how much time you got? Um, oh, I mean, as much as you have, which, which, is, which is not much. <laughs> I think the worst one ever was, uh, well, we're going only from Dallas to Memphis, I think, or Little Rock, which isn't that far, but the bus broke down. And it's 100 degrees, and there's no AC, and we're out there, ball players. This is double A, too. And we're getting, we had to get a, a, a big road grader from a, a freeway project to come over and push the bus so the bussy could pop the clutch and get it started again, which took all afternoon. And we played a game that night. So that was the broke down bus story. Yeah, I think that's my best. Every every single one of those stories usually has a theme of bus broke down, no AC, bathrooms backed up, something something of that nature. It is it's been you know it's been fifty years since you were in the minor leagues, and some things change, some things stay exactly the same. Uh, Ron Shelton, this was an absolute pleasure. Everyone go by the Church of Baseball, the making of Bull Durham, home runs, bad calls, crazy fights, big swings, and a hit. Ron, thank you so much for joining the show. Yeah, my pleasure. I enjoyed it. And that's it for today's episode from Phenom of the Farm. Huge thanks to the great Ron Shelton for stopping by, walking us through his career. If you enjoyed this episode, please remember to subscribe to every gear podcast, rate and leave a review for an Apple podcast or Spotify. And we'll catch you in two weeks. Thanks for listening.